0: Hi and welcome. I'm Beth Schenker, the host for a new podcast called The Big Schmear. My goal for this podcast series is to bring interesting stories about all things related to Jewish food to you. I want to explore a wide range of topics related to Jewish food that I hope you'll find interesting too. Some topics on my list include holiday foods, Israeli food, Jewish food trends, the politics of food, the history of Jewish food, favorite Jewish restaurants around the world and I'll be interviewing chefs, food authors, and critics, and quirky folks who love to cook and talk about Jewish food. I want to keep this podcast lively, and I'm hoping you'll help by sending me your ideas for future shows. You can reach me at this email address, beth at thebigsmear.com, and schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. Keep this address handy, and I'll have recipes to send out to you and special giveaways that I'll be sharing with you. And be sure to check out my website, TheBigSchmeer.com, where you can download episodes of the podcast. I'm excited to introduce my guest and get started with our first episode, entitled Keeping It Kosher with Chef Laura Frankel. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Laura Frankel is a noted kosher chef and newly appointed culinary director for Jamie Geller's Test Kitchens and Kosher Network International. And by the way, this means that you'll hear a lot from Chef Laura in the publication Joy of Kosher. If you don't know about them, check out their print magazine and their online version. Just go to joyofkosher.com. Laura is the author of two cookbooks, Jewish Cooking for All Seasons and Jewish Slow Cooker Recipes. Her third book, Clean Slate, Jewish Cooking, will be published in spring 2018. She's the founder of Shallot's Restaurant in Chicago, Skokie, and New York, and she served as executive chef for Wolfgang Puck for eight years. Laura spends her days in pursuit of the perfect bite. Hi, Laura. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Welcome. And um, thank you for being my very first guest on this first episode of The Big Schmear. I'm very excited. <laughs> um, I th- You know, here we are. Jewish podcast, Jewish food podcast. So I thought the thing that makes the most sense, let's let's start by having you give me your definition of Jewish food. What does that mean to you?
1: To me, Jewish food is something that either resonates with the Jewish community or is something we can point our finger to uh, as having originated in a period of time in the Jewish community. So kosher food obviously follows a set of laws in the Torah. It's pretty black and white. It's there. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Jewish food is different because Jewish food to... An Italian Jew who also keeps kosher is different than Jewish food to somebody who lives in Mexico who also keeps kosher. So it's where you can put it in place and time and where you are geographically in the diaspora or in Israel.
0: There's a lot of food out there. there (laughs) And we got to eat a lot of it. (laughs) Yay. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Maybe you could give me an example of, say, and you can tell me if this is right or not. So let's say I say gefilte fish. So gefilte fish tastes or is made this way, and then there's gefilte fish made elsewhere. And so maybe just give us an example of how things change. Gefilte fish
1: has actually a halachic or Jewish law reason for existing. And that is that you eat gefilte fish on the Sabbath or on holidays when you're not allowed to do any work. So typically eating a piece of fish, if it's, you know, kind of a bony little matter, you're picking out bones and stuff and you're working. On the Sabbath, you're not allowed to work. So you're supposed to enjoy your food. It's just supposed to be this like bite after bite of pleasure. And so gefilte fish was created as a dish that has no bones in it. So you're not working. So it actually has a halachic reason for existing. And what it means is stuffed fish. So they used to take the fish, the, the flesh and all the yummy bits out of the skin, clean it up, Flavor with if you're Polish, you would add a little bit of sugar to it and salt and matzo meal, ground up carrots and onions, all that yummy good mm-hmm. stuff, and stuff it back into the skin, and then it gets poached and it's this wonderful matter. And that was probably when it was really good. Now we see it <laughs> kind of floating around in these jars with all this like gelatiny whatever Gross is stuff. in there, this stuff. <laughs> the bigger the jar, the more scary Grossness. it is. <laughs> yeah. And and we've done away with that. Homemade filter fish is, is amazing and delicious. That being said, so there's varieties of it. And people will get like crazy about it. Like, well, are you Polish? Then it has more sugar in it. And the fish is almost sweet. It's like sweet, Mm. funky, whatever. It's not bad. It's delicious, but it's different. And then there's various versions of it around the world, including in Spain, where it's got pickled flavor to it. So there's there's um, vinegar and cloves, hard spices, cloves, cinnamon, that kind of thing. And it's almost like an Escoviche. And everywhere around the world, everyone's got their version of all of these dishes. But what always is amazing to me, going back to your first question about Jewish food, is that somehow everyone simultaneously came up with the same answer to the same problem. How do we eat on the Sabbath, one of everything, kind of, which is what you're supposed to do, like fish, land, and everything. It's like the surf and turf of of Jewish food. (laughs) But how do we eat all of that and still follow the laws? So it's almost like a paradox. So how are we going to have fish? How are we going to have meat? How are we going to enjoy this Sabbath fully and not violate any laws? And everyone came up with the same ideas, like Cholent, for example. Cholent is like... This crazy dish. And for anyone who's not had Cholent listening, it's this dish that just tastes unto itself. It's got all this stuff in it, typically meat and barley and different grains and onions and stuff in it. And it cooks for like 27 hours. <laughs> and after, at the end of the time when you eat it, you're just like, you can't taste the onion, you can't taste the meat, you can't taste anything, but it all tastes like itself. And, and in some ways, it's kind of comforting because you always know what you're getting. And it, and, it's, and it's like kind of a pair of slippers. You put them on, it's like cozy. It's like, ah. And that's like the, the Ashkenaz version. But similarly, everyone came up with the same version around the world. So there's like a version of Cholent that's North African. There's a version of Cholent that's Sephardic for the Sephardic Jews. There's one for everywhere. And everyone came up simultaneously with this dish that cooks all throughout the Sabbath. And then you pick it up on your way home from your synagogue or whatever. And you go home and you feast on it. But I just find it fascinating and endlessly delicious and entertaining to to realize that every group of Jews all over the world came up with an answer to the problem. And this was before newspapers and the internet. So we're all eating fish without bones and dishes that cooked long and were savory and amazing. That's pretty cool. It is actually really cool. And I, and when you trace back these dishes like hamin, which is like uh, the Sephardic version of Cholent, and it's actually probably my more favorite version of Cholent. It's it's centuries and centuries old. And people simultaneously, it's not like they had, you know, hey, get this idea, guys, you know, on Google or something. <laughs> Everyone just kind of came up with it. And it actually serves the purpose and fills that paradox of enjoying a hot meal on a day when you can't turn on an oven or light a fire, which is pretty cool. So that's what I love about Jewish food. And to me, that is like what screams Jewish food. And so I can almost kind of sniff out a dish when I'm eating something in a restaurant that has like Jewish roots to it. You don't have to tell it to me on the menu. I don't have to see it. I can kind of sniff it out and tell you where it came from just by how it's prepared or what it looks like and the
0: ingredients in it. That's why you're the professional. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about kosher. And I'm wondering if you can kind of give me the elevator definition of it. Um, A lot of people think they know what kosher food is. I grew up in a kosher household and um, I thought kosher food meant the rabbi did a little blessing. Right. That's like the tip of the iceberg and really has nothing to do with kosher. So that way, once we talk more about kosher, people will know what you have in mind. So kosher or kashrut is the series. It's a a book of laws. Usually
1: it's in Leviticus, in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, that tells the Jewish people, basically, the guidebook, which you can and cannot eat. And it's very defined. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, though rabbis like to play with it and what this means and what it doesn't mean. But basically, it's a set of laws defined in the Torah, in the written law, and then rabbis came along afterwards and kind of defined it and described it to us. But it has nothing to do with rabbi's blessing, anything. It has everything to do with list of do's and don'ts. So we do eat certain things. We don't eat other things. And in combination... But basically, it is just a list. And and it's very clean, very matter-of-fact. And the only thing that gets blessed is when the butcher actually has what you ordered. And, <laughs> and then he gets a big
0: bracha. <laughs> how did you decide, how did you become a chef of kosher cuisine? Did you set out in your mind, that's what you were going to do? Or what, what's your journey been? Kind of. And um, I had always, I had
1: cooked professionally before I started keeping kosher and, and, and doing it professionally, doing kosher food professionally was when I had my, my oldest son, Zachary, and I felt like there was like more than Nintendo and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that I had to give him. And we have this long history behind us. It feels like this thing that you trail around behind you everywhere you go, this Judaism thing, (laughs) you know, you have one too, I'm sure you drag it around everywhere you go. So I felt like I owed it to him to tell the story and to give him something of, you know, his people and history and what he did with it. That's his his choice. And then but it's kind of like the slippery slope. Once you're in, you're kind of like sliding downhill fast and you're all in or nothing. And so we send him to this Jewish nursery school. We had a couple of his friends over for playdates, and they came from kosher homes, and the only thing they could eat was like potato chips out of the bag on a napkin, because I didn't keep a kosher home, Ah. and juice boxes, you know, that had to have a label on it. And the mother's coming to scanning my juice boxes (laughs) and looking for it. I'm like, it was humiliating, Yes. and as a chef, it's embarrassing. I'm like, I couldn't do better than this? Oh my God. So... There you go. Boom. Done. <laughs> so now I'm in the grocery store. I'm reading labels. I'm I'm going through everything and it used to take me hours when I first started keeping kosher after the whole megas of cleaning my house and making the house kosher. And then I realized like most of the commercial and prepared food out there is absolute utter garbage. And then I started going to the restaurants and beyond what I just said about the prepared food out there, I was like, there is no one cooking anything decent out here. It's prepared. It's garbage. It's got a commercial flavor to it. And so I'm like, but wait a second. I, I do know how to cook. <laughs> I, I know what I'm doing. So I opened my first restaurant in 1999 and it was the first of its kind kosher restaurant doing a produce driven menu. So we were following the seasons And here in Chicago, on a cold, snowy night, you and I are sitting here today doing this wonderful podcast. And we know that there's no asparagus (laughs) or any of that kind of stuff growing. So I was doing like winter food when it really was winter. And I was the first person to realize that, or to actually vocalize that kosher food should be like everything else. It should be what everyone else is doing. So I would take the meat like duck or chicken or beef or whatever, and let the seasons decide how I prepared it. You know, if I'm pulling on my big heavy sweater, then I know that that duck is going to get some hearty root vegetables and a maybe an orange flavored sauce or anise flavored with orange sauce, something like that. And then in the summer, it was going to be wearing, you know, cherries or plums or something. So I let the seasons decide side. And that that restaurant did very well. That was shallots on Clark Street. I also took the restaurant out of the Jewish neighborhood and purposely put it in a different neighborhood where there was already other great restaurants. And then I did. Yeah. And then I did the same thing in New York. Um, Two crazy New Yorkers came into my restaurant one night and the restaurant was packed to the ceiling. They pushed their way in, sat at the bar and I took their menus away from them and I just started throwing food at them and just giving them plates that I thought they would like. And literally about a week later, I got a plane ticket and an invitation to go to New York to look at a space for a restaurant. Whoa. And that was in the Sony building, and that was Charlotte's NY. Sorry, so then I, flew. I was never there. Yeah, so and that was a fun that was actually a really fun um, journey for me. So I flew back and forth between two restaurants. For three years, that must have made you crazy. <laughs> it made me crazy, and <laughs> and it was exciting. But you know, there's always things that you miss out, and apologizing to my kids that I didn't go to their band concert. Sorry, Ari, if you're <laughs> listening to this, I apologize again. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but really, I am. Um, but it was exciting, and I learned a lot, and I learned how to operate businesses well and not so well and met a lot of cool people, and maintained a lot of good contacts in New York. And that was really what started the whole thing.
0: Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. It sounds like it just snowballed. It did, it really did. took on a life of its own. I wanted to ask you another question about kosher foods. So I've been doing some homework, that's always a good thing for a host to do, (laughs) and finding out more things about kosher food. And what I realized was, here's, kosher food's a big business. Large corporations have spent millions of dollars to become kosher, have their plants produce kosher foods, like I'm just thinking Nabisco just off the top of my head. Um, and so I'm guessing that they didn't do that just so all the orthodox and uh, conservative, et cetera, Jewish people who um, have chosen to keep kosher... I'm guessing that's not what happened. That's not what motivated them to do that. So I'm thinking, kosher is big business. Yeah. How, how is it big business? And and has it changed the way you think about your own work? Has there been some impact in that?
1: Yeah, and that's a, that's a really interesting question because it's not just Nabisco, it's Coca-Cola, and it's all these just a huge craft, even craft, just... Caved under the pressure of all this and came out with kosher mozzarella sticks for the very tiny little population of you know Jews in this country of, of all the minorities, we're the my mi- most minority of minorities, which is insane, <laughs> right? Um, and what it is is that kosher comes with this interesting set of ideas that people think that it's better, that it's a higher quality. And you know the old Hebrew National commercial? We answer to a higher authority. Oh yeah, yeah, and one of my favorites. Right? <laughs> Little do they know is that most Orthodox Jews won't be caught dead eating Hebrew National <laughs> anything. But sorry, Hebrew National out there. Um, but what it is is that people have this this idea that it's of a higher quality, and that there's another pair of eyes looking at the food, which is true. So a lot of corporations jumped on that. And it's not that Jews have, you know, that much pull in the world and stuff, though. We typically think we like to, and and we sure we sure talk about it a lot, as if we do. But it's really the people. The perception is that the food is of, of better quality. So I've taught numerous cooking classes in very strange parts of this country and outside the country, where I would have occasionally non-Jews show up, and they would say, "Well, we like to we like to see what the what the children of Abraham eat." And I knew those were my Christian friends coming to watch me cook. Mm-hmm. Other people who are just like lactose intolerant or people who have specific dietary restrictions would come and eat the food or learn how to cook the food, just wanting to follow what they consider a cleaner diet. And you and I both know, being Jewish, that you can eat just as much junk as everyone else and still be perfectly kosher. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but people feel like it's a, of a healthier, higher degree. Outside my New York restaurant in the Sony Building. I used to sit outside and take a break, and I would have two hot dog stands, one across the street from me and and one a block away. And I could see both of them very clearly. One was near the St. Regis, and one was a block away. And one was kosher, one wasn't. And I would watch people cross the street purposely, you know, one or two times just to get to the kosher stand. And, you know, looking at the crowd, you kind of make some ideas and judgments of who's
0: Needing to eat the kosher food and
1: who doesn't, whether I'm right or wrong. But the line was always longer. And what I realized is that people were eating these hot dogs thinking that it's that much better quality. It's like a stamp on it, like this is that good. And it, it, it is that, that there is a person supervising the food and making sure that it's clean. And as a chef, I know that kosher meat very rarely, if ever, gets recalled. So unfortunately, in the modern world that we live in, we see all these recalls happening where there's, you know, don't eat this meat if it came from this lot number yeah. or whatever. Kosher food has never, ever been included in that. And, and that's a really good thing because there is this extra set of eyes on it and there's this body of uh, this authoritative body giving a stamp on it that tells you whether or not it's fit to be consumed. So kosher means fit or right. So if it's fit to be consumed, it's right to be consumed, then it gets this stamp on it. If it's not, then it doesn't get it. And it goes back to the general population. So in the, in the slaughterhouse for meat, If the meat, if the animal being slaughtered was not healthy by, and the way they determine that is they inspect the lungs and the organs inside of the animal. And if it's not fit, it goes to the general population's meat. Hmm. Sorry guys, (laughs) (laughs) those of you non-kosher eaters out there. If it is considered fit and clean, then it goes to kosher. So there's two lines running simultaneously in the same slaughterhouse and one goes to kosher and one doesn't. And literally an animal will move back from one if it's not good enough.
0: Whoa, I had no idea. And it idea. is, and
1: it's, I know, and it's considered good enough. So if it's not good enough, everyone else is eating it. So in, 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 with that comes a price and it comes with that comes a higher price. So, as far as how I've geared my life as I know that people will pay a premium for it. So you can charge more for it. But really what you're charging for is that the product costs more. There's extra labor involved because someone has to pay that pair of eyes. And that pair of eyes didn't just end at the slaughterhouse. It's also working in my kitchen with me, usually as my right hand, watching the food to make sure that we don't do anything, you know, not proper Mm -hmm. in the kitchen. And it's done very respectfully and done well, but there is that extra cost for food. So, you know, knowing that, um, you try to, you know, cover everything, cover your costs and whatever, and to make sure that everyone is, is, feels comfortable that what they're getting is indeed what they paid for, that it's of the highest quality and that it is
0: kosher so now we're going to just totally switch gears. I'm going to ask you some fun questions. Not that those weren't fun. Yeah. Well, that was like FYI. This is the FYI. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me what are like the five basic things that you have to have in your personal kitchen that just, if you don't have them, there's hell to pay. Yeah. For me, it's like amazing extra virgin olive
1: oil. And extra virgin olive oil is my fat of choice. It's like everything gets cooked in it. Even if when there's butter involved, I still like have oil nearby at hand because you never know. Um, <laughs> and that's for sauteing and whatever, but a super good quality extra virgin olive oil, good quality salt. So salt and pepper, people are like, ah, oh, it's just salt and pepper, but it's not. And so I always have good salt and I have many different kinds of salt. So I always have kosher salt at hand, not just because I cook in a kosher kitchen, <laughs> but because it doesn't have these extra added things to it. And then I have sea salt, and then I always have like a fun salt, like a pink Himalayan salt or funky black salt, something cool. <laughs> Some good vinegar, whether it be balsamic or a white vinegar, red wine vinegar, I'm a fan of that. Great pasta. So, and luckily, most good pastas are kosher from Italy. Again, there's that power to the kosher food. <laughs> we always get the good pastas. Yeah. Good eggs. I'm a Midwest girl, so I'm always looking for good eggs. And I like mine to be not just free range. That's not good enough. So I want mine pasture raised. So it's another higher level. And to me, keeping kosher, I feel like we need to set the standard for what we serve and what we give other people and how we treat the animals. And a pasture raised chicken is just a happier chicken and should be the gold standard of kosher. Whether it is or not, I don't think so, but it should be, and I'm pushing for it, so all right, Laura. best eggs ever, and uh, was that five yet? I don't even know I lost, count. Well, one more one more um good chocolate, gotta have chocolate oh, yeah. <laughs> and thankfully, Baruch Hashem, <laughs> the best bittersweet chocolate happens to be kosher, too, so there you go. all
0: right, yeah <laughs> so my my next uh, my next fun question is, can you share with us a um a good family holiday story, something could be funny, it could be heartwarming, but um, some family meal that has a place in your memory and in your heart.
1: You know, there's, there's so many, cause there's, we live and eat, breathe and whatever food. So there's always food involved. I would say that there's certain meals that I feel like I've triumphed over that used to belong to my former mother-in-law. Uh, May her memory be a blessing. But that she would take control of the meals. And I feel like the first time the patan was ever passed to me, that I had triumphed. So I had, like, earned my stripes. And I was already a great cook and professionally doing my food and whatever, but that she trusted me enough to let me control the satyrs. So from the fish course on, uh, where I made my own gefilte fish by hand. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And... Then brisket and all the side dishes. And I had already koshered my home. And I felt like that was a big honor. And I made numerous desserts. And my desserts, I had edible flowers on my desserts. I I did like, I did it up. I was insane. You went over the top. I went over the top. (laughs) And we had 30 people like two nights in a row for Passover. So two nights in a row, 30 people. And you'd just like clean up, reset, and do it again. It was insane. But I felt like it was a rite of passage. So for me, it was a really big deal. And to then have decorated my table that, so that the kids would enjoy it and to have that in mind. And I feel like the older generation at that point didn't really realize that it was supposed to be fun and games for kids. It was only for them. It wasn't for us. We already know the story. It was to tell them the story. And so, you know, all the frogs came out and the toys and stuff came <laughs> out on the table. And that's really what makes it fun. But I did feel like it was really a big moment for me when I was when I took over the Satyrs and started and being in charge of the high holidays as well. Yes, that sounds like a, a... It was a biggie. Yeah. Yeah. But the best story is the time that I was supposed to be making the matzo ball soup, and I had made my own chicken stock, and it was like, you know, hours and whatever, and collecting bones and chicken bones and this and that, whatever, and it's like simmering away, and the house smells amazing, and it's lovely and wonderful, and everything's going. And I go to strain the chicken broth into the sink and I've got my strainer in place and I start pouring it down the drain and I realized there was no bowl to catch it. So I just watched hours and hours of work go right down the drain as I'm pouring going like, Oh my God. I should have known, better. I was just so like, I don't know, full of myself or whatever, <laughs> or full of soup and fumes of soup that I just watched it all go down the drain. So sad. It was so sad. And I bet that never happened ever again. <laughs> it never happened again. <laughs> and to this day, I remind myself every time I do it,
0: ah, oh, we don't want to have that again. It was heartbreaking. <laughs> it sounds awful. It was like 10 pounds of bones wasted. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> well, this has been fun. And um I'm looking at the clock and it looks like we're nearing the end of part 1 of The Big Schmears: Keeping It Kosher with Chef Laura Frankel. Laura's going to be back as my guest on part 2 when we'll focus on her role with the magazine Joy of Kosher. And in the last minute that we have here, Laura, I wonder if you could just give me a brief description of the magazine that you're now working with, and then we'll, this, we'll just think of it as sort of a little teaser for the next episode. So take it away, Laura. All right. Well, the magazine
1: and, and the online website are really three keywords, fast, fresh, and family. And with those three things in mind, we try to keep the food trends that are going on now in the real world. Everyone's trying to do all the healthy vegetables and healthy foods and light and interesting things, as well as everything is as uber kosher as it can get. So it's fun to be writing recipes that are very current and getting feedback all the time because people are always writing in and letting us know exactly what they think of those recipes. Uh-huh.
0: Aha. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm excited to hear more about all this, which we'll cover in our next episode. And speaking of writing, please don't forget to write to beth at thebigschmear.com. And uh, shmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. And listen to more of The Big Schmear and take advantage of our giveaways and free recipes. And be sure to check out my website, thebigshmear.com, where you can download episodes of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening to The Big Shmear. Please write and tell me what you think of the show. My email address is beth at thebigshmear.com. Shmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. And visit my website, TheBigSchmeer.com, where you can download episodes of the podcast. Our engineer is Mary Mazurik, and our theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo. This music can be heard on their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. This is Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmeer. I want to thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to write Beth at thebigshmear.com. And let me know what you think about the show.